0: This episode is brought to you by Paraswap, the leading aggregator to find best prices across various DEXs. You'll hear more about them later in the show.
1: Every developer is going to choose more utility versus less for their coin, and that will eventually mean building their own L2 once they quote-unquote outgrow Ethereum. And so the monolithic model of Solana is just fundamentally bearish in this paradigm where you assume that these things grow large enough that they want to have and own their own communities. Um, And so I think broadly, Michael and I would say that we're we're definitely ETH bulls, um, but more so than that, we're just like modular blockchain bulls, Um, and I think that's really kind of where the future goes over the long term.
0: Everyone. Quick reminder, nothing said on Empire is a recommendation to buy or sell securities or tokens. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and any views expressed by anyone on the show are solely our opinions, not financial advice. Santiago and I and our guests may hold positions in the companies, funds or projects discussed. Now, let's get into the show. All right, everyone, back with another episode of Empire. We are joined by two of my favorite people uh, at one of my favorite funds in the industry, Michael and Vance at Framework Ventures. They started with $14 million a couple years ago and have turned that into more than $1.4 billion. They're coming off the back of a massive fundraise from their third fund. It was an oversubscribed third fund where they raised $400 million. Really excited to chat. DeFi, gaming, they just had some bold predictions they put on their website, so I'm sure we'll get into those. uh, Michael and Vance, welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, of course. Glad, glad to be here. Long, Long time coming. It is, it is. Um, all right, so I had this whole outline. Shout out to our podcast producer, Garrett. He put together this entire outline on uh, DeFi and gaming and all that stuff. But then, obviously, over the weekend... Massive thing happened. Yuga Labs launched their land sale uh, (laughs) total debaucherous moment, I would say, in the space for NFTs and for crypto. And Vance, you had this great uh, tweet on this where you said you were talking about just like, what should Yuga Labs do, right? One of Yuga Labs' tweets was, we're sorry for turning off the lights on Ethereum for a while. It seems abundantly clear that ApeCoin will need to migrate to its own chain in order to properly scale. We'd like to encourage the DAO to start thinking in this direction. And Vance, you commented on that and you said, okay, StarkNet, DYDX style instance is not really ready. App chain is too hard to build economically secure validator set, forking in L2 is basically the only way to do this safely and effectively at scale. So I just wanna get your take on just this whole Yuga Labs, like board Ape debacle, and then getting into, tying that into just how should someone like Yuga think about scaling?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure I believe kind of the uh, the crypto Twitter, you know, Machiavellian conspiracy theory of, you know, they they planned it this way. They, they specifically designed the sale to clog the chain so that they could, you know, make rationale for for their movement and their own, you know, chain as well. But, but if you really do break it down, there are no good solutions to do this. Um, you know, if you want to build an application chain on Cosmos, building an economically secure validator set, building all the bridging tools, building all of the infrastructure that you need. That's non-trivial, and that'll take you, you know, probably a few years where you could, use, you could just be doing what your business is meant to do, which is putting out core IP. So that, that's kind of off the table. Um, if you look at, uh, you know, building a Starknet slash DYDX instance, you know, that just isn't ready. You're gonna have to write it in Cairo, um, and so that's kind of off the table as well. And, and similar to Immutable X, you know, that it has the same sort of problems at the moment, which is just the technology isn't really ready. And you know, you're know you relying on a lot of externalities that aren't core to your business. Um, and so, that's a big, big problem. And really, kind of what we see as one of the, the bigger trends this year is just the forking of L2s. And you can see this if you look on the L2Beat website, and, and it has like Métis, and it has, uh, I think, Boba is another one. But these are forks of, I think, optimism. And then they have a lot of TVL, and they're just able to spin themselves up, and they're able to work correctly. Um, and they don't have to build any other infrastructure or tooling. And so... Really I think the Yuga Labs is is an interesting proof point of like just play it out like what would you actually do there are no good solutions other than forking L2s and I think this is really bullish from for the Ethereum internet thesis where you just have this web of chains that has this economically secure validator set that's backed up by ETH L1 and Ethereum is this like very um you know it's 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 not too hot it's not too cold it's it's you know to decentralize at the base chain for you to really uh, build an application on. And so it provides you a fertile ground to launch an L2 where you can have your own native token, you ever can have your own ecosystem. And it kind of is this like perfect amalgamation of, of economic security, but also optionality on the second layer. Um, and so we expect to see a lot of that.
0: Yeah. Michael, you guys have invested in, I, th- I think it's over 75 companies now. A lot of those are built on ETH. As these projects get almost, I'm putting quotes around this, like too big for Ethereum. Where, where do you recommend that they go? What, do, what, what, do, what, are, what are their action items there? So one,
2: one of the things that um, maybe differentiates us from most other funds is that, you know, of course, we've invested a lot in ETH. Um, we've also invested on Cosmos projects, and, and we've definitely invested in projects that are building on top of Solana and, and now Avalanche more so. But frankly, for us, it's really about where the entrepreneurs choose to go obviously we have perspectives and, and we have insight and, and we can give advice and, and we can advise on, on different you know, trade-offs and, and different ways to think about the different chains and and layer two, layer one, subnet, base layer, et cetera. Uh, and so we spend a lot of time kind of going through that idea maze with entrepreneurs, but, But frankly, we're not wedded to one, we're not wedded to, you know, one concept versus another, you know, historically, yes, it has been Ethereum and and more so now it's been more, you know, optimism, arbitrum, uh, immutable, which are, you know, layer two solutions for Ethereum. So we consider those to be in the same family, but, but generally, you know, if if you need really high transaction throughput and you need, you know, maybe not as much security, there are other chains like Solana and and potentially Avalanche that are, they're maybe more akin to what you're trying to build. And so, you know, it comes down to two things: what What are you trying to build, and you know how do you think about it, and then you know where does the entrepreneur have you know an insight or have some desire to go. And and you know one of the things that I also think is kind of interesting is we're starting to see uh, what might be sort of like a, a, a multi chain approach to architecture design, where you're not fully built on one chain. Maybe you have aspects that are built on Solana because higher transaction throughput. Maybe the economy or the token needs to live on Ethereum because it needs more security. Um, and, you know, maybe there's part of it that's even centralized because you you can't have per transaction costs. And so I, I think if you squint into the future, the architecture design of the future adapts doesn't look exactly like we've seen over the past two years. And, and so, you know, that, that's just something that we're tracking as well.
1: The, the other thing just to add on to that is, um, you know, if you build on the EVM, <clears throat> let's say you build on on ethl 1 and your Yuga Labs, you know, like moving to an L2 is 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 trivial compared to the alternative of moving to your own chain. Um, you know, you have the same EVM tool set. You're able to migrate pretty seamlessly. Um, we saw Axie do that with Ronin and it, it wasn't, you know, world ending for their community. And so, like, that's a feasible option if you build on something like Solana like you're you're there for better or for worse for for the long term and you know, like there is no concept of you know an L2 for Solana yet. You know, and, and they're still kind of on this like monolithic structure and architecture. And I think that's great. But you know, long term, I think a lot of the plays for these companies are you know let's build our own little you know mini kind of garden of of this ecosystem that we have our own native token for, and that native token serves a higher purpose than just incentivizing the community to do things. It serves as you know auctioning off MEV slash sequencer spots for that L2, and so. Just it seems like a much more robust approach in the short term. And and really, we think all of the major applications, you know, for, for the most part, are going to be built in the next three years. And Ethereum just has the the highest credibility scaling red map, especially over the weekend when Solana goes down. It, it just it highlights how nascent a lot of this tech is.
0: <laughs> why would you fork the L2, though? Like why? So Op- Optimism obviously had their big announcement last week with their token and and a lot of eyes on Optimism. And like, why w- why couldn't they just go build on something like Arbitrum or Optimism? Why Why would you fork the L2?
2: So I think you can do either one. And frankly, it might be a staging process where you start off built on top of a layer two solution to build the community base, build the application base. And then once you hit scale and your single application becomes sort of a universe of applications, it, it becomes uh, you know an economic uh, tool that you can use if you have your own layer two solution where you get to to change the, the configuration of how transactions are customized. You, you, you understand more about how people are using your applications so you can build a custom tooling solution for that universe of applications. But to Vance's point, uh, you have this this token that isn't just something that's a governance token, isn't just something that's used for transactions back and forth on top of a layer two, it's actually used for the security of your ecosystem, of your universe. And and so having your own token that has the multivariate possibilities of what that token is useful for and and the value that you can ascribe to that, I think becomes a core advantage over the long run in the same way that you know Salesforce is a single application that turns into an API layer. And and I think you're going to start to see the, the new API layer as new layer two
0: solutions that you know, are custom built for these universe of applications. That's a really interesting thesis. Okay, so then where does the value accrue, right? Because I'm thinking about something that, uh, shoot, who said this? Um, Kyle, I think it was Kyle Samani said, L2s are parasitic to L1s because the layer 2 stakers actually determine the ordering and that layer 2 stakers get MEV I think I'm I'm quoting him right L2 stakers get the MEV and L1 stakers don't Vance if I'm under if I if I understand your thesis correctly and and Michael too mm-hmm. I'm assuming you guys are in agreement here you guys think that the winning L2 is eventually going to be the one that kind of best captures uh, and allocates this MEV to the community and that L2s will actually capture a lot of the value so is Kyle, is Kyle wrong here?
1: No, I, I think that's exactly, like, I think your description is exactly right. Like, look at all of what optimism's, you know, basically economic marketing is. It's, we're going to capture the the MEV, we're going to distribute into public goods funding, we're going to bootstrap and fund, you know, initiatives that better the, the overall L2, that can better Ethereum in turn. Like, that is the overall prognosis for what these L2s will do. And... Like, sure, you know, fees will go down by 10x, uh, you know, from L1 to L2 and people will migrate. But the overall universe of people that can use these things will go up by 100x. And so, you know, it's it's not just about like, oh, my God, fees are just going to be parasitic and decrease because there's going to be cannibalization. Like, you're actually growing the market. Um, so, that's the first thing. And just to double down on, on what Michael said earlier, like, Ape, ApeCoin, we don't hold any Abort Apes in the fund, but uh, like... You know, think about ApeCoin. It's a little bit silly right now. It's just like this coin that exists in the ether to incentivize people to do basically nothing, and and uh, you know, it's used for you know, I guess paying for land and, and other side things like that. But once you actually have utility for this thing, then it becomes disproportionately valuable as you know something that's core to the security of the chain, the community, etc. And so every developer is going to choose more utility versus less for their coin, and that will eventually mean building their own L2 once they quote unquote outgrow Ethereum. And so the monolithic model of Solana is just fundamentally bearish in this paradigm where you assume that these things grow large enough that they want to have and own their own communities. Um, and so I think broadly, Michael and I would say that we're, we're definitely ETH bulls, um, but more so than that, we're just like modular blockchain bulls. Um, and I think that's really kind of where the future goes over the long term.
0: Yeah. I mean, it feels like the narrative and the big conversation, uh, the big question back, maybe let's say, let's take it back 24 months was will we live in a multi-chain future maybe 18 months ago everyone's like will we live in a multi-chain future and now everyone says i think kind of the uh the agreement maybe you guys disagree with this is that okay we will we will live in a multi-chain future but what does scaling look like and maybe what does interoperability look look like i think there's um there's a lot of uh, focus on something like uh, avalanche's subnets there's kind of this renewed interest in cosmos's app chains what does maybe michael i'd go to you like what does the future of just like the, the multi-chain future look?
2: Uh, uh, it's a a broad question. Uh, (laughs) and and I think it's, it's going to take a ton of different forms, you know, and, and, uh, if we think about the diversity of potential applications that we're talking about, you know, extend, uh, the, the vision of blockchains into, you know, the, the future at at a certain scale. and, And you start to basically have every single type of application, anything from really robust financial services to consumer social media applications and everything in between, you know, uh, chat, commerce, content, basically anything that really revolves around consumer uh, and, and the internet usage that we see today, those patterns are going to be built or at least tested on blockchains. And so I think it really depends, going back to what I was saying earlier, it, it really depends on what the application needs. And so if you have the liquidity aggregated on one chain, the security because of, you know, higher prices, higher cost uh, aggregating on one chain, you know, you're going to want to be able to access that chain. While you're also going to have lower security, lower cost needs and a similar in in the same application that will have to be aggregated on a different chain. And so, you know, that right there implies that we're going to have interoperability in a multi-chain world just in in that one application instance. And and so I think what we're going to see is, you know, right now, obviously, it's pretty negative uh, in terms of the bridging ecosystem out there. Um, I think one of the things, you know, and this may be a little bit counter um, uh, perspective, but one of the things that I think a- actually will alleviate a lot of the stress of layer twos is centralized bridges. We still have yet to see, you know, Coinbase come out and, and build a bridge to Arbitrum or optimism. And, you know, as soon as you have that, you know, that onboarding into the layer two ecosystem is how basically everybody that I know got into crypto originally. And, and you know, you pull your ETH off of Coinbase and you put it into a MetaMask wallet and, and you know, now you're a DeFi. I think the same thing's gonna happen with layer twos. And so as we start to see more value you know, and, and trust build between the different chains, we're gonna start to see the actual technical solutions of robust bridging interoperability, IBC become just as viable as the centralized options and trustworthy as the centralized options. And so I think that's where we're really gonna see you know, these interoperability solutions come about. But to go back to the original question, it's absolutely gonna be something that's multi-chain. It just really depends on the application.
0: For the centralized bridges, do you mean something like what FTX does with Wormhole, like where you can withdraw your kind of portal wrapped assets from FTX into Wormhole?
2: Exactly. Yep. And okay. and we just haven't seen anything on top of a E player too. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: One of the uh, one of the interesting things just on on that topic is uh like when we were talking to Maple about um you know basically like there and for the people who don't know Maple is. Uh, a decentralized borrow-lend desk for crypto-native borrower and lenders. It's, it's basically a capital market solution where they have a pool that underwrites risk uh, You know, for a given counterparty. They'll look at their balance sheet, they'll decide to give them a loan, um, and they'll do it under collateralized. They'll, they'll do it at more competitive rates than people like Genesis, and they're just growing like an absolute weed. You know, They were going to expand to Solana, and, and one of the questions was, You know, should we just have Maple exist on Ethereum and and we can give out loans and people can bridge and do kind of whatever they want? Um, Because there's a big Solana community who wants a lot of, you know, capital as well. Um, But really the thing that, you know, we found out in talking to institutions and also just, you know, using these things ourselves is that people are not willing to use bridges in an institutional capacity. You know, that is the highest vector for you getting hacked on any given month, day, week, year. Like, it is just an absurd amount of risk. And, you know, that is fundamentally bearish for this, like, multi-chain architecture that exists outside of something that's economically secured by the same validator set. Um, And so that's just a lot of our perspective on, on where things go is that you know, bridges are just absolute nightmares when it comes to security. And we haven't found a security model that works for us yet in, in actually building things that span, you know, multiple chains that are not EVM based or at least share the same economic validator set.
0: Yeah. You guys have these amazing predictions on your website. When you announced the new the $400 million fund, you also put up a bunch of predictions, 2030 predictions, bold move, uh, making predictions 10 years out, eight years out. And we'll link it in the show notes if you guys want to actually read all of them. One of the predictions was uh, a $10 billion on chain, I think it was a ten billion dollar on chain hack will occur. Does this come from a bridge? Do you think, or what? What, what does that ten billion hack dollar hack look like?
2: <laughs> uh, it was a very good question as well. I mean, really, kind of the the intention behind that, and the intention behind basically all of these is, you know, it, it's really easy to kind of look forward in, in a couple of months or a couple of quarters increments um, and, you know, predict what's going to happen and generally directionally, what's going to be, you know, the, the end state of the world after that time period, it's really, really hard to predict years. And if you look backwards in time over crypto and DeFi, you know, uh, it, it just moves at exponential, exponential scale. And so a lot of these are really just extrapolating forward the, the continued exponential or non-linear growth that, that we've seen so far. Um, I, I don't know if we've actually had a, a, an official billion-dollar hack. Ronin might be the biggest one with the, you know, 600-plus yeah. uh, million. And, but if you take that and you extrapolate forward a couple of years – you know, it could be a bridge. If that's where the aggregate, the aggregate value in a decentralized uh, ecosystem with smart contracts uh, is is being most used, then, you know, that's probably the biggest honeypot that you can imagine. And and so, you know, that's where bridges, you know, fail currently. But yeah. if we take that and, and think about where, you know, that value aggregates eventually, it could be in a staking contract. It could be in something, you know, like a, a you know in amm it, it it really just depends and so you know what we're really doing here with all of these predictions is just extrapolating forward and kind of putting something out there that says hey you know this is the scale that we're going to be getting to in the next three four five eight years and so we need to think about how to protect ourselves or how to you know live in a world which has this level of you know on all of these predictions this level of scale.
0: yeah let's pivot a bit from talking about scaling and talking about staking um uh, maybe a week or two lido i feel like people were. I don't know. I feel, like, I feel like everyone loves Lido. And then people were kind of turning on Lido on Twitter uh, the other day, maybe a week or two ago. And I just want to get your guys' take right. 30% of ETH right now is staked via Lido. And Lido has something like 85 to 90% of the liquid staking market. Um, is Lido's dominance a threat to ETH at all?
1: Um, so so uh, let me just back up to like the controversy that was happening. There, you know, yeah. Uh, I think I think it started with like Kobe is obviously you know uh, you know a member or founding team of Lido and like Ryan Berkman's great guy uh, he's you know very pro Ethereum and and has led a lot of the research and analysis around ETH as an asset um, and I think you know what he was trying to say and it got a little garbled and like Kobe's a great guy I don't think he like has any like you know he's like Solana funded I think was like the kind of metaphor that they were using but I think what Brian was trying to say is that. Hey, there's a lot of concentration here in Lido, both from a smart contract standpoint, you know, if that contract were to get hacked, but also from just like a client diversity standpoint in terms of you know, the people actually operating these different staking instances, that you know, there's probably a pretty healthy market for being, you know, number two. And in all software categories, really kind of what you see is. You see, like, the premium brand who's run away with the market, who's captured most of the customers that everyone kind of hates. And then there's, like, somebody who comes second and who's, like, maybe a lower cost, maybe a little bit lower brand. But, like, being number two is actually a huge market opportunity. And so I'm I'm glad that people have, like, you know, started to throw spaghetti in terms of, like, okay, how much do we hate Lido? Maybe maybe actually a decent amount. Uh, maybe there's a, a robust and healthy market for, you know, the second competitor. Um, and I think they're coming. Frankly, Lido has just had such a head start, and, and nobody really thought that Ethereum staking would be quite as large as it is today, that you know they were just beneficiaries from that first run, and they're going to go multi-chain, they're going to spread their efforts, they're going to spread their focus, and, and there will naturally emerge the second spot. And you know we've certainly been active in funding a lot of people who are, are trying different staking derivatives, and we'll be active in putting our capital behind them. And so, we're looking forward to making this a horse race. But the whole drama was basically, there is a a market for number two, um, and there yeah. isn't one yet. And there should yeah. be.
0: I mean, it, it kind of reminds me of just the. Uh, this might be an overused analogy, but like the cloud wars, right? Yeah. People, people exactly. when, when when AWS launched, like people didn't realize there was even a market for it. And today, it's a hundred and eighty billion dollar market. AWS obviously dominates. They have thirty three percent of the market. Then Azure has something like twenty percent. But then you've got a bunch of little players that have like between five and ten percent. You've got Google Cloud and Alibaba and IBM and Salesforce and, and Tencent and like look five percent of a hundred and eighty billion dollar market. Not too shab- not too shabby.
2: It, the public cloud uh, market and dynamics that have happened over the last, uh, call it 15 years, probably is exactly the way that we think about it. I, I think we both agree that there's probably going to be like three to four, maybe two to three really large winners here. Lido is obviously a, a success case here. You know, Rocket Pool is definitely, you know, coming at, at number two right now. And, I think there's going to be other solutions, some of which, as Vance alluded to, that we funded that are, that are going to be right up there as well, if not surpassing some of them. And and I think the second place is definitely valuable, third place is valuable, potentially fourth place as well. But I, I also think we're about to go into a, an era uh, of post-merge ETH, where not just you know any of these winners, but the the entire ecosystem is going to grow in the same way that you see the public cloud you know take off over the last 15 years. And you know as we start to realize that eth2 is happening you know proof of stake is going to happen and as these institutions, and, and many of which we've talked to, need to move away from uh, LIDO or, or have diversification of their, their liquid staking operations, whether it be it from you know, some internal rule that they have or internal diversification requirement or just like a, a natural sense of decentralization. And so yeah. I think you're going to start to see this become a forcing function over time into the number two, number three, number four.
0: Will this look like one or two companies come out and and try to compete with them, either centralized companies or kind of DeFi or decentralized companies? Uh, Or is this like almost something that really doesn't exist yet, like an association association or like uh, a a bunch of them kind of band together to almost take on Lido?
1: I I think you're going to see kind of all flavors of like go-to-market strategy. You know, you're going to have like the populist, like frog nation style, you know, like we're going to... We're going to really decentralize staking this time for the people. And, and, you know, who knows if that'll work, but they'll be aggressive. They'll be throwing tokens at it. There there's an appetite for that type of go-to-market. Then there's going to be like the centralized companies that just go to whoever's doing, you know, the Ethereum ETF when it comes out and they say, listen, like we're going to stake your assets super safe in a custodial environment. You know, like we're going to and and, you know, obviously they're going to be a big player. And so you're going to kind of see the whole rainbow. I also think you're just going to see You know, you have this thing where, you know, you obviously create a a decentralized staking derivative, and then you have that, it's in DeFi, you can do something with it, and you can go and bootstrap different ecosystems, you can go and, you know, incorporate that into the treasuries of all these different projects, and so, there's just so many different ways to get distribution for these things, um, that I think we're going to see probably even more fragmentation than we see in the cloud market, just because there are just frankly more levers that you can pull, centralized, decentralized, you know, populist, you know, very enterprise go-to-market, like, there's just infinite kind of... Diversification that you can have, in, in how these companies operate.
0: Yeah, can you go deeper on staking derivatives and just explain to folks what that means? Yeah, so a, a staking derivative is essentially, you know, uh, in in the form of um, Lido, for instance. Uh,
2: when you stake one ETH into the pool, you get a ST ETH uh, staking derivative back, and, and that staking derivative, um, in in particular with Lido, rebases. So. Steth rebases and increases the number of Steth that you have uh, based on the amount of returns that you get from the staking that's going on from you know, your ETH actually on a validator set right now. And so right now, I, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, I think there's about five or six percent yield for anyone who's staking within the, uh, the validator set within the initial test net for ETH2. But the expectation is that post-merge, that staking uh, rate actually goes up to somewhere around eight to 12 percent. And so you could actually see a doubling of the amount of return that you get. And so, you know, another, you know, liquidity sink, another reason to stake when you actually see, you know, massive return potential uh, in the form of ETH. But a staking derivative is really just a way of capturing that. And, and the derivative token itself
0: is really dependent on the platform that you're choosing. And, and that's that's the one specifically how Lido works. Michael, you were talking about uh, the ETH merge. So we just had Travis Kling on the episode. If you guys haven't heard it yet, you guys should definitely listen to it. Uh, and he was talking about how the Uh, He thinks that ETH is incredibly undervalued right now, uh, and he's holding more ETH than he's held in a while uh, because the merge will make it uh, ETH deflationary, a yield generating asset, and it will then uh, kind of check the box on the ESG narrative uh, that institutions need to start allocating capital, real capital to Ethereum, like uh, kind of similar to what happened two years ago when Paul Tudor Jones uh, started allocating to Bitcoin, called Bitcoin the fastest horse in the race, that kind of took away the career risk for hedge funds to start allocating to Bitcoin. He thinks that the merge is going to start, uh, will do the same thing for Ethereum. So Michael, in your mind, is the merge priced in right now? <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh,
2: <laughs> I think I think crypto in general, just a broad uh, universal statement, is, is some of the most inefficient uh, markets that you could ever see. You know, Solana is down 1% after being offline for seven hours on a Saturday. You know the market is is disconnected from you know network uh, and network usage or network statistics, but no, I mean frankly, I still get questions personally. Like, is ETH two going to happen? Is the merge actually going to happen? And these are people in the industry. You know, some people that should right. be knowledgeable about you know the status. And uh, I mean, if you follow any of the uh, people on you know Twitter that are that are talking about this, you know, there's tons of people. Uh, Tim, you know, or uh, uh, you know, anyone at at EF is is talking about the live updates uh, of of all of the different you know initiatives and and time scales to actually get this thing live, and and it's going to happen in the next few months. I think there's a lot of you know questions around what's the timeline for like the Shanghai hard fork afterwards, where you can actually withdraw the ETH from from the validators. I mean, there's questions around you know, what the economic uh, opportunity is going to be around ETH post-merge, you know, is it, is it really going to be as much transaction fees on ETH L1 versus L2? And so they're, they're obvious questions, but I, I think generally, you know, ETH 2 is not priced into ETH. And I fully agree with everything Travis talked about, you know, the institutionalization of ETH as an asset becomes viable after the merge because it gets de-risked. And, and that is probably one of the biggest opportunities in any financial market that I've seen so far. Keep in mind,
1: staking was supposed to ship in 2016, um, so there's there's reason for people to not believe us, you know, basically. Um, and when it happens, I, I guess the proof is in the pudding. You'd also just be so surprised at how many people who run funds who are you know quote unquote subject matter experts just have no clue what is going on with Ethereum, like. I remember a fairly well-known hedge fund manager was telling me that EIP-1559 would not happen because the miners would block it. Like, what? Uh, you know, it just it doesn't it doesn't make any sense if you spend at least 10 minutes in this discord. You'll understand that that's just economically, mathematically not possible. Um, and so, there's just tons of alpha in this space still. It's the world's least sophisticated market somehow with the most
0: upside. Um, and we're, we're definitely beneficiaries of that. You were, Vance, you were nodding your head the entire time, pretty enthusiastically, the entire time that Michael was talking there. If you're, I know you, both of you guys are incredibly excited about ETH. What are the high beta plays then that almost could outperform ETH? How do you, how do you look at that? How do you almost invest and allocate capital when you think that something like ETH, which is almost becomes your base case, uh, could, could three or four or five X, whatever, whatever you guys actually think there? like, how do you actually think about allocating capital to outperform ETH? I think really what's going
1: to happen with Ethereum is that it's going to prove to the rest of the world that staking is the birth of, you know, the merge is the birth of an industry. And when you see Ethereum spitting off, you know, between 5 and $10 billion of cash flow in a really good year, potentially even more than that, and it's returning basically all of it to stakeholders in the form of either burning it or direct yields, and, and we, don't, we still don't know if that yield will be taxable. You know, that, that court case that came out around, you know, how property is created in a staking context, you know, it kind of leaves the door open for a very favorable interpretation of the tax law when it comes to this, and so that combined with just the economic upside, you know, people are just going to take a step back and say, okay, um, this is the this is the major narrative that is playing out. You know, where else, where can we find exposure to this other than Ethereum? And, and keep in mind, Ethereum will probably run, you know, at some point as this happens, and so then it'll be like, okay, where is this yield going? You know, is Lido getting a slice of it? Is Rocket Pool getting a slice of it? What about you know, subnets? What about Avalanche? Is there yield there? How does this work? And, and so you're going to have this whole framework built around this in terms of you know, how do we get access to staking yield that may be favorably taxed in an environment that's very high growth. Uh, and so I think you know things like the staking derivatives are obviously going to be quite successful. Um, projects that build you know staking derivatives into their own models, whether it be you know something like Tribe putting a lot of its ETH into uh, you know uh, ETH staking, and, and obviously they have yield from that, which they can then in turn put into the project again. You know there's going to be kind of this reflexivity that gets generated by people who have some tangential connection to staking. But every single product, project, blockchain will integrate staking into kind of what they're doing. So that they can pattern match this narrative, and so you know, as you think about, uh, you know, the last major waves of of narrative rotation, like the L ones, you know, the the games, the things like that, it's probably going to shift towards an environment that's more judged on a fundamental basis as to how much cash flow are you accruing, and that's going to create, you know, frankly, some of the first fundamental valuation models that we've seen in the space yet. So it's going to be a different type of environment. Um, and it's going to be more institutional friendly and you're going to have people that are able to allocate large dollar values into these staking networks. Um, And so you're going to have a wind at your back. And that's always very important when you're investing.
0: Yeah. So you agree with someone like um, uh, Jeff Dorman, who we also just had on the podcast. Folks should go listen to that if they haven't already. Uh, Jeff Dorman believes that right now there really aren't fundamental models in crypto, but eventually every asset class gets these fundamentals, whether it's like um, well, yeah, pretty pretty much any asset class eventually gets these asset models where right now, if you gave like an asset to 10 different analysts, they would value it in 10 different ways. But if you give like a, just an equity to 10 different analysts, they're all going to value it on some sort of discounted cash flow. So you guys think that this space eventually converges upon fundamentals?
2: Absolutely. And I think it was Ryan Berkman's who put it out, uh, EthereumCashflow.com. Um, you know, there there have been some initial takes as to what the post merge you know DCF model for Ethereum could be, and um, you know there's still a ton of variables and assumptions that go into all of these models, just as any any DCF would would assume. But you can actually start to get some of the, the points filled as you start to see some of this stuff happen. Once the merge happens, we're going to actually start to see, you know, what are transaction fees doing? You know, what is the post-merge burn looking like post EIP 1559 as well? And so we can start to put in, into, into place some of the variables that are, you know, unknown at this point. And, and from there, you know, th- this is one of the reasons why we believe that the institutionalization is, is going to happen. It's because as soon as you start to get clarity around what these models look like, Anyone who's an analyst at any bank or institution or or fund uh, who's looking at crypto and saying, okay, well, how can I how can I know whether or not you know Ethereum is valued properly or if Ethereum is valued fairly right now, or if it's undervalued or overvalued? You know, there's just going to be a market around predicting where Ethereum goes based off of the cash flows because you get two forms of cash flows, whether it's a burn or or it's basically a distribution from staking, and so. The, the only variable that I think is going to be interesting going forward is it's not just owning ETH that gives you a right to that secondary cash flow of, of staked you know, returned assets in the form of basically a, a stock dividend. But if you are a stater and you do have access to staking products and staking services really at your hand, you know, very easily, then you can be someone who receives that as well. And so... I think that's one of the reasons you know, why we're also really bullish on staking derivatives and staking products and services, because if you allow those to be easily accessible to institutions, you know, it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be something that's impossible for them to get access to. And, and so I think you know, there's just a lot, of, a lot of financial viability in terms of where this thing goes and, and the analysis that's going to go into it over the next 12 months.
1: The the other thing I'll say about kind of staking in, in the context of how we see the investing world evolving is, you know, this year is is a is a great example of how investing is changing. And, you know, bonds have had their worst year in 40 years this year, and, and stocks have just gotten crushed right alongside them. And so, you know, there's this idea that maybe they aren't uh, you know as uncorrelated as you might think, and, and maybe it's just not a holistic basket for how you might want to structure your entire net worth worth around these investments. And so you know if you think about how crypto evolves and like how you can structure something like a total return, you know like a, a fund that like Bridgewater would put forth, you know maybe half of it, you know maybe sixty percent of it is staking, where you have you know reliable yield that you can hedge out the risk of and you can actually have that yield start to stack and build accretive value to your portfolio potentially in a tax favorable environment. And then you have, you know, probably some some assets that people can start to take fundamental views on that look a little bit more like how you trade equities, where it's like, okay, this, this company has X cash flow, we're looking at it growing at Y rate, maybe it has Z multiple. Like, you can construct a total return portfolio that doesn't look like gambling or totally insane in the context of crypto, once you have the staking derivative that's a little bit more consistent yield. And so I think with this birth of an industry will also become the birth of just entirely new types of investors that are creating these new types of portfolio for folks based around something that's a little bit more fundamentally valued, but also that it just has you know, yield coming directly from what you're staking.
0: If you are someone like Bridgewater and you want to actually allocate to uh, like staking assets or staking derivatives, are you going out and buying staked to eat? Like, are you at, like, spinning up a pool on Lido or uh, like what, what, what's the best way to allocate there? What are, you, what are you actually doing? What are you guys seeing on the ground here? So,
1: the, uh, so like, you know, what's going on right now is, uh, you know, let me let me tell you where, where I think the trade will be. So, I think that, like, the trade that a lot of institutions will put on is uh, you buy ETH on Coinbase exchange. And then Coinbase will, you know, assume that they will have, like, an institutional staking program at some point once Ethereum turns on. You take your ETH, you stake it with Coinbase, you know, they'll give you back your your staked ETH derivative. So, like, you know, in the case of Lido, it's Steeth. You know, you take that Steeth, you send it to FTX, and you use that collateral to short the Ethereum perp, the future. And so, what you have there is, you know, you're collecting yield from, you know, the ETH yield on, on that side. You're collecting yield from shorting the perp, and it usually pays you to go long the perp, and you're entirely hedged and so basically what you have there is you know and and people are reducing the funding rates and so it looks more attractive to long eth if you're not in this trade and you're just you know retail that's punting around and so you know the entire dynamics of this space are going to change a lot you know once this trade is put on and people are going to put it on in huge size and there's going to be squeezes where people run out of collateral to short the perp, and and it, it'll exacerbate some of the moves in that regard. But you know that's the fundamental trade that people will put on because it's delta Hedge. You know you can do it entirely custodial in, in some contexts, um, and you know that is where you get the most value for your buck if you're an institution. Um, it's harder. You know if you think back of like you know you mentioned Paul Trudy Jones earlier. You know, say you're an analyst in this big investment bank. You know, you have two things that you can pitch. One is you're going to buy digital gold for the coming apocalypse. Two is you can put on a delta neutral trade that earns you yield, which doesn't make you seem like an ideologue. You know, it's like very clear where most financial professionals land when you like talk to them, if you have. Um, and it just feels very clear where this is going to go. And so, you know, we're not people that call for the flippening, but like, it feels like it's going to be obvious at some point. And I think it'll be either this year or next year. You know, that Ethereum is just a generational
0: asset. You think it's this year or next year that the market cap of ETH, which is today, what, like 350 billion, flips the market cap of Bitcoin, which is something like 700, 750 billion. So Bitcoin's what, 2x ETH today, I, and you think I, it flips? I'd put it at next year, probably. Like, that, that seems reasonable to me. Just to piggyback
2: on what Vance was saying, though, when you take that concept and, and what Vance described as a perfectly delta neutral, perfectly hedged situation where you're just earning the yield... The other thing that I think we're going to start to see is number, well, two things. One, you're going to see that packaged up into a product that probably is sold by institutions as well. So, you know, if you want access to that yield, there's a, there's a basis for having a fund that manages the whole thing for you. And two, I think you're also going to start to see people get a little bit more directional in terms of their betting on, on that exact concept, or maybe they go half hedged, and you know they get half the upside of what Ethereum will do, which is a, effectively an index proxy to what the growth of the industry will have. And you have some downside protection with your income generation that's, that's half hedged. And so you're gonna start to see a ton of these different flavors of products, and it's not gonna be just one size fits all for everybody, And I think you're going to just as you see with ETFs and just as you see with, you know, some of the more managed funds that these banks are putting out, these are going to become managed funds that will probably be just available to accredited investors and and not something that's approved for retail. But there's going to be a massive opportunity for for building those products, for selling those products. And, you know, the people that are getting access to them are going to get indexed and hedged or completely hedged or somewhat somewhat hedged uh, access to, to the industry.
1: It's like, you know, all all financial professionals do all day in in Michael and I's estimation is just like dream up these like new products that they can sell people, you know, like QQQ with like a dash of leverage, you know, like, ooh, we're gonna we're gonna hold if you're PIMCO, you're you're making like, you're making these bond portfolios, and maybe you'll sell some vol just like juice the yield a little bit. And like, you know, they'll come up with these fancy descriptors and and why this is risk free and amazing. And this is no different. And frankly, they just haven't had a a product to sell before, and, and the product they were selling before was, you know, gold Like gold is gonna going, is going to become more important and maybe Bitcoin is like digital gold. That just like is so specious and, and relying on so many different assumptions that like that isn't actually something you can package up and sell. It has to have yield or it has to have something that's fundamental.
0: All right, everyone, quick break from the show to share a big update from our friends at Paraswap, the best platform to stake, swap, trade, farm, and more. Paraswap just launched gas refunds. Based on how much you stake, you can now get up to 100% of your gas refunded on all of your swaps on Paraswap. This is huge for anyone who has spent a lot of time in DeFi or maybe it's just starting out. You know how egregiously expensive the gas transactions can get the gas fees are ridiculous at some points in time and now you can get those entirely refunded on paraswap to participate all you need to do is stake a minimum of 500 psp big shout out to the paraswap dow for making these refunds possible really it's just it's tough to be paraswap right now they give you the best prices Uh, They save you money. You've got this gas refund if you stake PSP. They've got a smooth and really user-friendly interface, fast swapping. It's really everything that you'd want from a DeFi platform. If you don't use them already, check out Paraswap today at paraswap.io. Now let's get back to the show. Let's talk about new products. Um, One new product uh, a couple years ago was Uniswap, right? And Uniswap kind of changed the game of DeFi and really took off. Uh, during DeFi, DeFi summer um, as this, like this, you know, AMM, right, which was incredibly, I would say, like revolutionary uh, and and opened up a lot of capital flowing into DeFi. Um, Vance, I think it was you who said you're actually pretty bearish on AMMs. Um, there's a lot of X, like Citadel, DRW, Jane Street folks are building kind of better trading protocols that are cheaper for users and just a better business model for wallets. And I think this is like on-chain payment for order flow, but I want to make sure I'm I'm not putting words in your mouth, and I just want to hear you kind of expand on this thesis on, on why you're actually bearish for AMMs.
1: Yeah, so like the history of AMMs is, you know, order books are, are just, a faster, cheaper, more efficient way to, you know, execute and and get best execution on orders. Um, AMMs were designed for Ethereum because it was too slow for order books, um, but it was, you know, fast enough to have these X times Y equals K curves be calculated and distributing trades, liquidity, et cetera, on the fly. And so, like, AMMs, if you look at the historical context, are very specific to how Ethereum, you know, was constructed, still runs, still scales, et cetera what you see now is you see these people who are building things for faster chains and and faster chains is like the key criteria here where you have things you have chains that are fast enough for an order book they're fast enough to sell order flow ahead of time and they're fast enough to effectively have You know, instead of phantom, you know, basically allowing their users to get hit for, you know, 10, 20, 30 basis points, they can sell that order flow to market makers ahead of time. Those market makers can give the wallet, you know, five, six, seven, eight bips on that trade, and the wallet has monetization, the traders get better execution, and it's just overall a better model. And so, you kind of believe one of two things with the future of of trading. You know, either AMMs continue to become the, you know, the dominant form of trading, and that relies on kind of these slow chains proliferating, which... Maybe that happens. Maybe Ethereum L1 just runs away with it, that's the only thing that happens. But I think more likely is the case that everything moves to low-cost chains. The next billion people are going to come onto low-cost chains. They're not going to be the same degree of crypto whales that we had in the past. And so, kind of by logical extension, assume that it's either going to be AMMs or this payment for order flow model that dominates. And if it's on a low-cost chain, and that's where the center of gravity is, the payment for order flow chains facilitated by an order book are going to be the ones that win. And so for us, that's frankly where the most interesting things come from, and that's you know just one project. The other things that we see are you know dark pools that are built on zk uh, zk rollups, where you know you can trade five hundred million dollars of Ethereum anonymously with a counterparty without signaling to the market at all, and like you know just the complexity of how different trades are done are also going to expand, and and the types of institutions that trade in them will also expand and there's just going to be a lot more avenues than just a vanilla AMM going forward. And I think you see a lot of this in in V3's architecture where they move towards more of this quasi order book model um just because that's frankly where we think the space is going.
0: Yeah. I have I have a bunch of questions here. One is doesn't that contradict your earlier thesis though that a lot of this ends up getting built on eth, right? Because if everything's if you think that as retail comes in, they go to these low cost chains, and like that, ex- you expect then like payment for order flow protocols to kind of supplant the AMMs. Uh, if everyone's moving to these low cost chains, like a Solana or something like that, that contradicts your earlier thesis that everything gets built on ETH, no? I, I think like
1: things are going to get built everywhere. I think predominantly yeah. where things get built are on L2s or on, you know, frankly, rollups that use ETH for data availability. I think that's where everything goes long term. And, you know, assume that ETH will scale, you know, once sharding gets done, probably like 10 to 100x. Assume rollup scale another 10x in between then and, and maybe even more. And so you're talking about on, on ETH L1, probably transactions under a dollar consistently in the next year to two years. If yeah. you're talking about L2s, it's probably much lower than that. It's probably less than you know 10 cents. Yeah. And so I think you know the scaling of ETH has always been faded because it's been on the horizon for so long. But Most of the decisions that were made to scale Ethereum were made three, four years ago, and they just happen to be playing out today. Um, And so I think that's a
0: lot of our thesis there. Yeah. Um, So it kind of feels like payment for order flow protocols will get big on something like ETH or wherever it is once things like gas, like gas is probably too expensive right now for this model to work. But once gas becomes cheap enough, okay, then AMMs kind of get supplanted. I think, I think payment for order flow
1: will, you know, start on things like Solana and Polygon and then move to the higher cost chains as they make tweaks to it. Payment for order flow is an amazing business model for folks like Robinhood. The only problem in traditional finance is that there's only one person bidding or allowed to bid on this order flow and it's Citadel. If you open that up, if you have DAOs bidding on order flow, if you have all these different market participants, it becomes a really interesting and robust business model. And we just think that's where part of this goes.
0: So you'll see a bunch of folks like a Tokamak pop up that start bidding on this?
1: Right. Like, exactly. That's part of the thesis for Tokamak.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Santiago, uh, thankfully, is not here. So I can ask this question because he hates when I ask this question. But like, are we like, I'm hearing you guys talk, okay, so like Lido owns, has like a monopoly on on ETH staking, you've got like payment for order flow is the better model. And obviously, like, you know, I think some of the pushback maybe of of crypto is like, we're just kind of recreating traditional capital markets. And what, what I would probably say to that is, well, we are Recreating a lot of capital markets, but it's just a hundred times more efficient than what capital markets actually look like today. When you hear things like, "Okay, payment forwarder flow is the better model," let's build that. Uh, there's like a monopoly on staking. Like, does this not make you? Um, I guess it just. There's always a middle ground. I was gonna say it's like not really in the ethos of of crypto, but I guess crypto is changing a lot.
2: So I, I think the advantage of DeFi and the advantage of having all this built in the open is exactly that, which is it's transparent and it's open and it's fair. You know, as Vance alluded to, Citadel is the one who controls, you know, basically the entire choke point of all the value that's flowing through payment for order flow models right now. And it's because, you know, they're, you know, the biggest, they're the best, they've built the best systems, but, you know, they've been able to accrue network effects to what they've been able to build. And I think we, you know, the reason why you see Lido, as we discussed, is the taking, taking it away right now with uh, decentralized staking derivatives is because we haven't seen competitors pop up yet. We're also, you know, probably like three, four months ahead of the merge even happening. So like the, in my book, the competition hasn't even really started yet. And so, I, I think we're going to start to see a lot more competition. We're going to see a lot more competition, especially on the payment for order flow, as Vance was alluding to, with having all different types of flavors of participants be able to bid on this uh, on this flow. And so, you know, the advantage here, I think, isn't you know, our, or to go back to your question, we're, we're not just recreating everything on chain, and, and you know, it's we're going to end up in the exact same world of like winner-take-all markets. I, I think what we're going to actually see when you have open and transparent. Uh, markets for all financial services is that you have more competition. And when you have yeah. more competition, things will eventually get more fair and they'll eventually get cheaper and more efficient. But I think that's just not something that you see right now in traditional markets. And, and that's the advantage of DeFi.
0: Yeah. What are your guys' thoughts on kind of these OG DeFi protocols? Aave was at 600 bucks May a year ago. Aave was trading at 600 bucks a year ago. It's at 140. So it's down from like 600 to 140. Uniswap was trading at like 45 bucks. It's down to six or seven. Uh, you guys had a large allocation to Chainlink, right? It was like 50 bucks. And now it's down to like 10. Like, do some of these OG DeFi protocols that are actually used a lot. Um, yeah. What, what are your thoughts on some of these like old school DeFi protocols?
1: I think with these old school DeFi protocols, like the charts are obviously super unfortunate. Um, I think that's obviously due to a degree of, you know, the narrative rotation outside of DeFi into GameFi, um, but also a lot of the macro stuff. And, you know, to some degree, they have no control over either of those. But um, the most important thing about any protocol is just, like, how good is the team? And I think a lot of these DeFi blue chips have earned their stripes because they've been through a couple of these markets, and they've sometimes even built through the last bear market. And so, for us, people like Sergey, people like Stanny, people like Kane, people like Hayden... Um, and we don't have any exposure to Uniswap specifically, but, you know, those are the folks who, you know, we just see them being able to build a, a business that has longevity and, and things will come and go. And, like, Uniswap could turn off, could turn on the fee switch today and rock it back up to $45. You know, like, there are catalysts here and there are usage. It has 90% of the AMM market. Um, and so, I think to some degree, you know, we will see these come back just because, you know they already have gone through all of the cliffs of investors unlocking they've already gone through the product market fit iterations that didn't work and they found something that does and a lot of them are frankly generating enough cash flow where you know they're just undervalued relative to almost any traditional metric and so just like coinbase has a pde of 9 right now uh, you know these things have a similar profile and so we're going to see a lot of these come back we're also going to see a lot of them die and never you know ever return but the only thing that really matters is who is in the chair typing the, the keys or the code or, or the, doing the podcast. And, you know, it's just all about good management. Those things don't change from Web 2 to Web 3.
2: And, and I, I just add there that I think one of the, the reasons why we've seen such a malaise over the last year is like going back to this whole ETH 2, Layer 2, you know, everybody expected that we're going to have Optimism Arbitrum live at this point last year. You know, they're just now kind of getting to the point of realization. And so all this stuff gets delayed by years when you're building really, really difficult technology and the software takes longer, just inherently. And so, you know, that I think was more of the plague of the OG DeFi, which is built on ETH layer one. And you know, they're having to transition to to different, you know, layer two solutions and different chains. The the other thing I'll say you know is that we're going to also start to see some of these funds and you know I, I don't even know how many billions of dollars have been raised by crypto VC over the last you know X number of months but you know it's in the billions of course and it's probably going to you know double triple by the time you know maybe even this podcast comes out but it, it's you know something that I think we're going to start to see uh, people actually taking steps in open markets to buy tokens on, you know, exchanges, when you start to see some of these values, as Vance is alluding to, whether it's price to earnings, the cash flow that's being generated, you know, those become really viable venture bets, whereas previously, they weren't unless you were in the private rounds and the seed rounds. And so maybe there's going to be an inversion of, you know, public tokens to private deals, you know, whatever you want to call it. But I I think you're going to start to see some some of these funds take, you know, an allocation of their capital and go buy tokens.
0: Yeah, we're talking about these OG DeFi protocols, a lot of them use just like, uh, liquidity mining to, to bring users in. And then people realized, oh shit, I give a bunch of tokens. Well, then people actually end up dumping the tokens. So maybe it's not an amazing customer acquisition tool. Let's lock up the tokens, right? And so then VE got introduced and uh, you know, VE was actually this like nice model for a little bit, right? With like curve and, and convex and things like that. But now we're kind of seeing some of the downsides, right? I think just this past week, the biggest whale on uh, Phantom got liquidated or almost got liquidated for like 50 million due to loans on this like four year locked position. Vance, you're laughing. Maybe it sounds like you know who this was. Or uh, I don't, I, 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 someone just messaged me on Slack about it. So I don't even, I haven't even looked into this. But um, what, what are your guys' thoughts on VE? And Vance, maybe if you have a story about the, uh, the phantom liquidation, too. <laughs> so I, I think you know, generally what, uh, what we're starting to see is
2: just maturation of token economic models writ large. And it's through experimentation, of course. Um, and, you know, VE was pretty powerful for, for Curve and the way that they kind of initiated that entire concept. The, the other one that we're starting to see as well is this X token concept where, you know, I think sushi was the one that pioneered that model. Uh, you know, there's been a couple of proposals from, from even some of our portfolio companies on this X token model. I think we're going to start to see more shots on goal in terms of, you know, what models make sense for the right token, the right community and the right, right application. And, Um, It's nothing perfect. And as you get to points of sufficient decentralization, a lot of these decisions are turned over to the community. And and we'll see kind of which way the wind is blowing when these communities are making these decisions. But, you know, these models are improvements inherently than just having, you know, liquidity mining incentives and, you know, new tokens being spit off into a into a Uniswap pool to incentivize that liquidity. I I think, you know, these are fundamental um, increases in the utility of the token. When you have the ability to stake it, you're you're segmenting active participants with stakers and non-stakers, um, and and so yeah, these are generally improvements. Ve, I think it's been you know it, it's definitely been used quite a bit, but it's definitely an improvement over just a regular token, um, just as X token is as well.
0: I don't know. I feel like with X token, I've seen some of these models too, and you guys know this a hundred times better than me. But like it kind of feels like the DAO ends up handing over the vast majority of their protocol revenue to like a handful of whales. Which kind of ends up further concentrating ownership and control over the protocol, but I could be wrong well, here.
2: And and so this is how, this is really dependent on how you do it. And you know, Maple, yeah. as we've talked about, is one of our portfolio companies. They publish treasury reports on what their total costs are. And you know, the the cash flows that are distributed to uh, to the X MPL or, or will be when when you know uh, the proposal goes live. Uh, you know, that is something that's X cost. And so I, I think you know, these models are starting to be figured out. Not all of them are uniform and not all of them are the same. But I, I do think that you know, if you do it right and you have the incentives and, and the alignment of the community, they can be powerful. Yes, every single one of them isn't the same and not every single one of them will work perfectly. But, but I think generally, once again, these are just improvements over you know, having a general liquidity mining incentives as the core use case for the token.
0: Anything else on DeFi that you guys are really paying attention to? Anything else that's really interesting? I want to talk gaming for a second, but um, anything else that's really interesting that uh, you think is kind of underlooked or or overlooked right now?
1: I, I think like a couple of things. You know, just the level of talent that's coming into this space from like Chain Street, Citadel, DRW. You know, like you're going to see a major up leveling of market participants in the next six to twelve months. Um, and I think, you know, the name of the game, as I kind of tweeted and as we've talked about, is it, just like, where is the flow going? Is it going to AMMs? Is that likely to be the future? Or, or is it likely to be more of like dark pools for large block trades, payment for order flow for retail, you know, MEV becomes increasingly important, staking becomes increasingly important. That feels like more where DeFi is going over the next 12 months than like, let's build a copy of Uniswap on Phantom. Like, those days are over. Like if you're still on Phantom, you should be. You should know that you're just in this like PvP game, you know, with other people who are trying to take your money. Um, if you're trying to find real innovations, you know, you should probably come back to the chains that are actually fundamentally interesting. And I don't like to, you know, shit on entrepreneurs. I also just don't like blatant cash grabs.
0: Um, so that's kind of my perspective. Let's talk gaming. So you guys raised this four hundred million dollar fund. What percentage of the four hundred million will get allocated towards gaming?
2: We've said half, but you know any number that we put out there is just inherently going to be wrong. So you know it could be plus or minus I'll whatever. Hold you to
0: this, Michael. <laughs> yeah,
2: it's you know we can make predictions, but our predictions yeah.
0: will be wrong. Yeah, I when I think of framework, I think of like. DeFi OGs, right? I think of people who are not just invest. Have, we're not just investing in DeFi before pretty much everyone else, but actually participating in DeFi, right? For anyone who's listening to this, if you've interacted with the DeFi protocol before, you've probably also interacted with Framework or Framework Labs uh, in, in some in some way or another. And so I think of you guys as these like, yeah, just some of the catalysts for DeFi. Why are you guys starting, t- I wouldn't call it a pivot at all, but like almost an, an extension of the fund. Like, why are you guys so excited about gaming right now? you know
1: just simple simple facts are gaming is the world's biggest market there's 3 billion people who play games a year there's 1.5 billion people with internet connection that make less than $5 a day you know they're going to go play play to earn games when these things came out um, more than that, you know, this is actually closer to Michael and I's original background. You know, I worked in corporate development at Netflix. Michael was a PM at Snapchat. You know, media, gaming, entertainment—these are the things that we came from. And you know, we did DeFi because it is going to be one of the biggest markets in crypto. But also, frankly, it was the first category of product market fit that was ever going to exist. Blockchains are built for financial products. You know, that was just going to happen no matter what. Um, and DeFi is, in large part, the infrastructure for a lot of these use cases. NFTs are just a financialized version of just you know trading pictures with your friends. Um, you know a lot of the use cases that are very powerful in gaming are also built on DeFi primitives, and so for us, it's just a very logical build in terms of like we're going up the stack towards you know use cases that are more top of funnel that have more chances of mass adoption, um, and it's also just challenging as well. And, and I think that's always kind of the the you know challenge with a new fund it's like a new album you have to you know reinvent yourself they loved your first album like what about your your new stuff like can you get them to to kind of be into that and and for us that's just like the fun part of of running a fund is is having the ability to continually reinvent
2: yourself and and i think that's that's the macro perspective you know obviously massive market but if you think about the micro as well you know there's just a core advantage that you have in having ownership over the assets that you develop in a game ecosystem Having the ability to partake in a marketplace that extends and enhances the gameplay experience. And, and, you know, play to earn with Axie, who really kind of innovated this concept in the first place. You know, it's an interesting model. And I think, you know, give hats off to them. Like they, they created the concept. But what we really think of is the transition from play to earn to play and earn, where it's a supplementary element to the gameplay itself which really is defined by, is this something, is this a game? Is this something that I want to play on my own? Like, would I fall down the rabbit hole just by playing on this, uh, you know, on a Friday night? And if it's not, then, you know, there's going to be a hard time for us to, to really believe that there's really true staying power. And, you know, this can mean anything from a fast casual game, like a, you know, Fancy Birds type, uh, you know, experience to something like Alluvium, which, you know, and we've backed both of those concepts where, um, you know, you you do get an opportunity to have open world, you know, massive scale uh, gameplay, but also have a marketplace which enhances the elements and and potentially, you know, and really, you know, creates the gameplay experience in a way that you haven't seen before. And so, you know, when we think about gaming, it's not as much, you know, pure Axie as it is sort of the future potential of what that model could be innovated upon um, into. And and so
0: that's, you know, one of the things that we're looking at. When you look at financial markets in crypto. Um... The kind of bigger banks and bigger exchanges were just way too slow on this, right? They're way, way, way too slow. What that did is it opened up a market for the Coinbases and Gemini's and Krakens and, and BlockFi's of the world to come in and dominate. And their success ended up causing uh, caused a lot of entrepreneurs who were kind of pushing at the, at the edge of innovation to build in DeFi, right? What we've seen with gaming, I think, looks a little bit different, which is you had some like really, really early games that were pushing the edge of innovation, like someone like an Axie. The and then now i the some of the og studios are actually i think pushing faster into gaming than it, t- it you know it took some of the bigger bigger banks like it took someone like jp morgan like 10 years to actually think that crypto's real but when when uh, these gaming studios start to get competed with they i think they're moving much faster than any of these banks moved so when you guys are looking at like what the state of crypto gaming looks like in a couple of years is it are some of these games built by the big studios and like these triple A games are gonna be built by the big studios or are they actually built uh, from like crypto native entrepreneurs?
1: I think it's gonna be a little bit of both, but you know, if you've worked in a big tech company or a big gaming company, you just know how hopeless they are in like ever being agile and and developing a new product category before it's been proven. Um, And you know, they're not gonna be the people who go off and pioneer and and we've heard like rumblings that, you know, there's gonna be played earned games coming out from some of the major studios in, in the US, but like, TBD. We've heard that for a while, um, and so like, who are the people who are most likely to take the superpowers of blockchain? Um, and I would define those as global distribution of wallets, you know, tokens as a new asset class, uh, internet native culture, and just the ability for composability, censorship resistance, that anybody can build and combine those into a game. You know, it's gonna, probably going to be the crypto natives, and, and it's not going to be, you know, probably like the crypto natives with no gaming experience. Like, I don't think Dark Forest is going to, like, emerge as a breakout hit that, like, everyone plays. But it's probably going to be some indie studio with a bunch of guys who are trading crypto on the weekends, who really know what this is about, are really passionate about it. And they're just going to say, you know, I don't want to go and sell another game to a major studio. I'm to try something new. I think those people are going to have the highest shot of, of you know, creating something that stands the test of the time. And, and franchises like EA and Blizzard and Activision, there will be crypto native versions of those. Like as sure as we are sitting here in two or three years, those will be something that that exists. Um, and I think one of the main things about like DeFi versus the banks and like, you know, maybe the indie crypto studios versus like the bigger studios, these things take a long time. Alluvium was funded in January of last year. It's probably going to be another six or nine months before like the mobile game comes out. You know, all the bells and whistles are there. The the gameplay is fully viable. Um, And so there's a gestation period and any new game that gets funded, you know, like I see the funding announcement of these new games. I'm like, cool, I'll I'll play you in three years. Um, And so, you know, are we good gaming investors? Like we're going to find out um, and we're going to find out probably sooner than other funds because we were just
0: earlier to this trend in general. What's more exciting to you guys? a crypto native game that looks kind of like Alluvium, that's like, like Alluvium is uh, is as crypto native, I think, as you can get, right? Like everything's on chain, they've got NFTs, they've got like the DAO makes the decisions, or you've got option B, which is like EA Sports, or like, I don't know, some, some, some huge gaming company goes and builds a game and like, they've got in-game NFTs, but they've got all the gaming experience, right? They've got like a thousand game developers and like in-game economists. What's more exciting, A or B? <laughs>
2: no it's definitely michael A, michael um, was
0: thinking b and vance was about to fire no no him, so. no I, I was
2: i was gonna say both uh c both um but no i i think you you have to live and breathe this stuff to really know what's yeah. going to work in this industry um and if you don't I, I think it's it's gonna be an uphill battle getting caught up to speed um you know in, in an ideal world you're you're able to to conceive of what the game is gonna be, and you're gonna be able to tell a story and you're gonna be able to, do, to build a, a storyline and character development around that. And, and that's gonna be something, you know, that you're equipped to be able to do, but you also have the web three native approach and you also have the ability to to resonate with the community. Um, and and so, yeah, I think generally, you know, I, ideally it's both, but I think you're starting to see, you know, the, the bridge somewhere in the middle where these two sides are gonna meet. And you're starting to see people from the gaming world really get up to speed, on the Web3 aspects, and you know, we went to we went to GDC, uh, which is here in San Francisco a couple of weeks ago, or I guess a couple of months ago at this point. The entire conversation, you know, the biggest game developers conference in the entire world was 100% Web3. And I mean, not I'm I'm being hyperbolic, but it, it was all about Web3. And you know, how do I integrate NFTs? What are the different types of solutions? What's the wallet solutions that I can integrate into my game? And you know, that was the entire conversation point. And, and so, you know, this stuff is going to happen a lot faster because of the pouting effect of having games and game developers just understand that this is the new platform. And you know, not only is it the new platform for you to be able to develop a game, you know, a, a major part of our thesis is the catalyst of what happened over the last 12 months where Apple and Google have removed the IDFA from, from most of their applications and, and their, their operating systems. And so what that means is that the business model of advertising for small to medium-sized game developers has been rugged from them, you know, and so now it's not just a, a nice to have, let's go explore how to build our game on top of a blockchain. It's a need to have. It's, it's, you know, the only economic viability that they have to continue to build games is moving to this next platform. Uh, and when you have a marketplace element that enables, you know, NFT sales and, and resales uh, being your economic moat and, and your business your business driver, it just means that you don't have to rely on being an advertiser to build your business. And, you know, being a subscale advertiser, there's nothing worse than doing that. And so th- there's there's just an opportunity for you to have, you know, real scale with real business around a blockchain. And, and so I think that's, you know, the recognition of that is, is really what's driving a lot of this excitement.
0: Yeah. Uh, you guys have like 20 different predictions. I don't know the actual number, but um, there's a couple that I want to dig into. This one, uh, most SaaS businesses have their own L2 on Ethereum, replacing their public-facing API, and this reminds me a lot of like, I don't know, when I got into the uh, in, into the industry, like. 2016, 2017, enterprise blockchain was the narrative, if you guys remember that. Like everyone was talking about enterprise blockchain. And if you, do you I don't go. know. If, yeah, I don't know if you guys remember the, uh, oh my God, what was, who was the commercial? It was IBM and Walmart. And it was like, Walmart is moving their mangoes onto the supply chain with like the help of IBM blockchain. everyone's like, oh my God. And actually, that was what convinced my co founder, Mike, who was doing man, uh, management consulting and supply chain. Uh, I finally convinced him that Ethereum was real because of uh, because of this commercial uh, t- turned out to be totally not real. But um, anyways, this kind of your prediction here, most SaaS businesses uh, have their own L2 on Ethereum replacing their public facing API. It's super interesting because it almost takes me back to that enterprise blockchain narrative. But I could see this one coming to life. So, Michael or Vance, whoever made this prediction, can you just talk through what you're thinking here?
2: Yeah. So I, I think this one was me. I can't remember exactly. Um, but. This goes back right to something that we were talking earlier, uh, you know, about where SaaS businesses have this, this API ecosystem, which they try to get their you know partners, integrators, et cetera, to, to build on top of. And, and you know, I've used the example of Salesforce as, you know, it's now more of an API company than it is sort of, a you know, a core product company. And, and that's how they would describe it. But I think generally this is how you're going to start to see the points of integration where businesses want to integrate and get on chain. But, you know, the going back to 2018, I think the narrative was something akin to, you know, it's all about blockchain, but not Bitcoin. You know, if you don't have the the token, the, the token that is building your level of security, you know, building your level, your layer two and incentivizing in that way, you know, you're really kind of missing the forest for the trees. And, and so I think what we're going to start to see is, you know, your own layer two, as opposed to leveraging, you know, something that is built on a layer two, because you want to have that token build your security layer for your ecosystem and, you know, the apps that you're building, the apps that your partners are building are going to be built on that L2 and integrating through that L2, you know, and, and, this is also, you know, these are eight year predictions. So squinting into the future to see what this looks like. This is also kind of the basis of what interoperability could mean for us as well, where you start to see these enterprises across layer two to layer two, you know, have these, you know, data sharing agreements, have these partnerships where, you know, you're you're building apps on each other's layer twos and, and, you know, that's, that's how you connect. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of the basis of this, but um, yeah, I mean, th- there's a lot of ways to, to potentially see this one coming true. Well, one thing to
1: add uh I think enterprise blockchain failed for the for not the reason that people think it failed. Like, let, let's go back to 2017, 2018, when they were actually trying to do enterprise blockchain. You know, what blockchain were you going to were you going to build? Like, you were you, were you going to fork like a very primitive Quorum. version? Of Bill, JP Morgan yeah. forks even yeah. and goes
0: and builds on Quorum. Yeah.
1: But, but like, you're building your own validator set, you have to build, like, again, like, going back to the Yuga Labs example, what does enterprise blockchain look like in 2022? You're just going to fork an L2, it's going to be yours, you can control who's in there, you can control who's not, you're secured by Ethereum, it just gets far easier to do this. And so, I mean, we think enterprise blockchains are going to be back at some point, and it's just going to look like L2s, like, this is going to happen And. You know, it's it's the it's the perfect level of like marketability of you know we're doing something we're on Ethereum it's controlled though like it's ours so like we kind of own it um, yeah. but you also have real utility you know pay us in stable coins integrate our API it's on a blockchain like you just have
0: something valuable there and it doesn't have all the overhead that it used to have. Yeah, I'm I'm laughing, v- Vance, because um, Mike and I always joke that we that we are going to completely miss the next like big like the big social network built on crypto or like the enterprise blockchain thing. We're going to completely miss it, uh, when it when it actually happens because we're so pessimistic uh, and got so like, <laughs> just like, <laughs> yeah, we just saw so much shit, obviously, in the 2017 uh, market. So that like when the next social network gets built on ETH or something like that, we're, we're going to miss it because we're going to be too skeptical. So
1: there there are no bad ideas. There's only bad timing. Yeah, you know, literally every every idea that anyone has will come true at some point. It just matters, like, you know, do they have the right infrastructure to support it?
2: And this is coming from two people who built basically Top Shot in 2018, 2019.
1: Oh, yeah. Michael, <laughs> and, I, Michael and I hated NFTs for so long because, uh, <laughs>
2: because
1: you know, and, and we sold our company. It, was, it wasn't like a change the world outcome, but it was certainly enough to seed framework. But, you know, we hated NFTs for so long that, like, we just wouldn't touch them. And, you know, we were wrong about that for a while. And I think we switched before we were really, really wrong. But... You know it's the it's case in point
0: yeah let's talk uh talk about another prediction um you guys had an episode of bankless actually i think it was like june or july summer of 2021 advance you said in 10 years 10 percent of global gdp will come from dows uh, and then you guys had another you guys had an actual prediction on this blog post that said 10 DAOs will manage over a hundred billion dollars each so can you just talk to me about some of your theses around DAOs and how actually how big they can actually get here
1: yeah, I mean, uh, let's let's take uh, let's take you know Faye, Tribe for an example. You know, Tribe has about seven hundred million dollars, maybe less uh, now, but um, of Ethereum. Uh, and you know, let's say that they don't do anything at all, and Ethereum goes up ten x. You know, they're going to have probably about seven seven and a half billion dollars of assets in their DAO. And their yeah. whole the whole point of of Tribe is to you know generate yield either via stablecoin, but by the PCV, by other metrics um and so they'll obviously get some sort of multiple on that which they can then use to borrow against be more capital efficient generate more yield you know these things will you know be reflexive in that same way and so you know assume that ethereum is is even higher than kind of what we think you know these DAOs are going to be within you know striking distance of 100 billion, which would put them at the same level of the world's biggest investors. So Tiger manages about 100 billion, and Dreesen is about 56 billion today. You know they're going to be right up there, but it's going to be in a decentralized context, and so it's going to be very controversial when they get that size, and they will get that size um, because there's going to be you know a DAO, people voting on where the capital goes, um, and it's going to be you know a lot of spotlights that are on them as well, but you know, almost by the force of the, the markets themselves, combined with the utility of these projects, you know, they're going to get there. And, and the same goes for the Luna Foundation Guard, which is basically a DAO, it's a multi-sig. Um, you know, things like Tokamak as well, which have like 1.5 billion in, in TVL. Um, you know, these things are going to get there, and they're going to get there quickly. Um, and they're going to have a ton of leverage over the rest of the ecosystem. They're going to be buying in-game assets. They're going to be building referral programs, bringing people in. They're going to get very sophisticated very quickly.
0: Last question here, I'm going to ask both you guys, Michael, we'll start with you, is um, we had Hasib and uh, Avichal, Avichal from Electric and Hasib uh, Dragonfly on maybe a month ago. And the way that they categorized their thesis on just what is happening today is narrative exhaustion, right? For the last 18 months, things just moved so quickly, starting with kind of DeFi summer. And you had DeFi summer for an entire year. The price of these things went like 100x. Then, and you know, Beeple sold his NFT for 69 million. NFT like we've been in 18 months of an NFT bull market, and it's been completely insane. Facebook changed their name to Meta. The Metaverse thesis uh, got really hot. Gaming obviously super hot. So it's just um, we had two years of just like these crazy narratives, and now it feels like things have really slowed down. Whether we're in a bear market or crypto winter, whatever you want to call it, uh, it really feels like I like what Avichal and. Uh, Hasib said of just like narrative exhaustion, people are kind of tired of the narrative. We need a break for a second. Michael, how would you ca- uh, categorize your thesis on just not the next eight years or ten years, but the next six months? What the rest of 2022 looks like? So I, I think what's happened, frankly, I, I agree with narrative uh,
2: exhaustion, and, and generally, there's just been so much that's happened. The run-ups have been massive. You know, this this is you know probably the third bull market that I've seen in, in crypto where you start to see, you know, 10, 20, 50, 100x, you know, uh, returns. But I think generally, you know, so whenever that happens, people are going to, you know, be exhausted in general. Um, and, and so I think, you know, what I think has really happened though over the last six months or, or actually probably call it like five months now is really what's happened on the macro macro scale. You know, you actually start to see inflation become real, and and therefore you see Fed, you know, increasing interest rates, and you know, you see what's happening in, in Ukraine, and you know, the conflict between them and Russia. And, and that drives, you know, consternation in terms of global supply chains and, and you know, potential for massive uh, military action. So uh, there, there's just a lot of fear in the market right now. And so I think it's the combination of the narrative uh, being overexhausted, but it's also, you know, macro macro being something that's, you know, never looked worse than it is right now. And, you know, a lot of the I can't remember the exactly the survey, but the the sentiment of um, you know, American investor sentiment has never been lower uh, since uh, March twenty two thousand nine. You know, and, and you think about what was happening right there. You know, it was the depths of the global financial crisis, and you know, even March twenty twenty was not as low as it is right now. And so, you know, the global sentiment I think is really negative um, as well, and so. What, what happens in the next six months? Well, I, I think if we can start to see you know, some abatement of inflation over the next couple of months, that will be a positive signal. You know, some changes in the perspective of how many interest rates we're going to have to go through for the next six months, that would be some positive signal. Um, a, a ceasefire or some you know change in, in the dynamics between Ukraine and Russia, that will be some positive signal. And so I think right now macro macro is kind of steering the ship. Um, and so you know as we get closer to some of these positive events like the merge, Maybe that will will win back some of the the, the positive perspective for crypto, but uh, macro macro is going to be driving this stuff until then.
0: Yeah, yeah, you could really see a world where the Fed maybe starts decelerating tightening, heading right to the merge, and that kicks off something interesting. So, Vance, maybe if you want to wrap us up here, I know we're on time. So, uh, what, what are your what's your outlook for the next uh, six months? So,
1: I, I would kind of put it. Uh, I agree with everything Michael had said. I, I would say, like, you know, let's go back to mid 2021, you know, interest rates are at 0, uh, you know, crypto is crashing in the middle of the summer. You know, that's when I was super worried. I, I was basically like, man, we have the most accommodative scenario that we could possibly have and crypto isn't rallying. Um, yeah. and so that was very concerning to me. You know, let's go to today. You know, people are the most pessimistic they've ever been. You know, the Fed is going to go full, you know, bear whale and, you know, tighten or Titan and, you know, QT and all this stuff. And crypto's hanging in there. And so, like, you know, I also think this is a little bit on the backdrop of of people just being so scared and so nervous that they don't realize that we're gonna have this huge post-pandemic boom that's gonna knock everybody's socks off. Like, that's gonna happen. Um and so I, I'm fairly positive on the macro side. I, like if you're in a good scenario where the crypto's hanging in there and, and there's, you know, nothing but potential accommodation on the horizon, like that's when I get fairly bullish. I also just think on a fundamental basis, we need to build a bigger table. You know, we need to have use cases which touch gaming, which touch content, which touch commerce, which bring in hundreds of millions of users. We only have, you know, probably 30, 40 million MAUs at the moment. You know, that needs to happen. We need to invest in custodial experiences that my mother can use this stuff. We need to invest in all different types of payments that people can onboard easily. But that's all the work that's going on right now. And so we're fairly positive on all of this. And, you know, I think when we look back, it's so hard to remember, you know, it's easy to remember exactly what happened. It's hard to remember how you actually felt. Um, People won't remember feeling this bearish when when everything kicks back off. That being said, I do think the scams, the cash grabs, those things need to die. And I'm looking forward to seeing those people leave the space.
0: Yeah. Do we have on one hand it feels like we've already gone pretty low on the other hand we have things like this crazy Bored Ape metaverse land grab like land grab. Do we have lower to go here? Is sentiment low enough, I would say? I
1: think we'll we're going to go a little bit lower. We probably need a little bit more punishment. Um you know, people need to really feel how 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 bad this could be. Um but you know, there's going to be a lot of dispersion. You know, Ape is going to be a very challenging coin to to be holding I think over the next 6 months. Um you know the, the facade of Yuga Labs being able to execute everything flawlessly was obviously broken last weekend, um, and usually that's kind of the first step. You know, once there's a chink in the armor, it's like a little bit like okay, hold on to your hold on to your shorts. Um, so that's kind of my sentiment at least. There's going to be a lot of assets that move differently than each other just because they have different levels of fundamentals.
2: Yeah, and, and I think, you know, markets always lead economics and then, you know, the data of the economics is a lagging indicator. So we're going to start to see the effects of what's going on right now in like three, four months. And so, you know, markets are going to change right now. Then the economics are going to come through and then we're going to get the the readout prints. So I, I would I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, this plus or minus a couple of weeks is is going to be the low. But, you know, uh, to Vance's point, it, it, it could be sooner. It could be later. We'll we'll find out.
0: Michael Vance, this was awesome, guys. Thanks for your time. Thanks for uh, both jumping on. This was uh, made it really special. So I appreciate uh, the insights into DeFi and gaming. And congrats again on the four hundred million dollar new fund. Appreciate it, buddy. Thank you very much. Yeah. Go. Cool. Take care, guys.